Hello, I'm Kate Jabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. The Defence Secretary has ordered a security review of the UK's airspace as the White House says it's confirmed a Chinese military spy balloon programme and a British minister says it's possible they've already flown over the UK. China is a hostile state and we, we need to be aware of that and the way it acts and behaves. Have we actually been looking out for spy balloons before now? And do we have the capability to identify them? A former top RAF officer will help us understand. Also this week, why is Estonia sending its military hardware to Ukraine while relying on British troops for its own defence? It's a very simple understanding that each tank destroyed in Ukraine is one tank less behind our border. And Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark will explain whether a tough week for Ukraine is the start of Russia's new offensive, as America's top military officer makes a bold claim. In short, Russia has lost. General Milley's conclusion is premature because, of course, Ukrainians are dying every single day. So, last week, it was a balloon. This week, three more mysterious objects have been shot down from between twenty and 40,000 feet above North America. Uh, Michael Clark, they were literally unidentified flying objects, UFOs. Yes. I'm, I mean, I was holding out for the little green man theory, to be honest. <laughs> I was hoping that somebody would poke their head out of the thing and wave, but they didn't. I mean, it looks as if the three smaller objects that were shot down, the Pentagon is now saying, were just commercial things, research balloons that are just junk in effect. But the fact that it's such a big issue at the moment, it's dominated the headlines for a week, shows how fraught superpower relations are at the moment. I think that's the lesson from this. Well, the US now says there's no indications these three much smaller mysterious objects were carrying out surveillance, but they can't rule it out. They haven't picked up any of the debris yet. The giant balloon, on the other hand, they say they found and are now analysing its sensors. Rear Admiral John Kirby, who's now National Security Spokesman for the White House, told the world it's part of a much bigger military operation. We're able to determine that China has a high-altitude balloon program for intelligence collection that's connected to the People's Liberation Army. It was operating during the previous administration, but they did not detect it. We detected it. And we have been carefully studying it to learn as much as we can. Well, all this has prompted the UK's Defence Secretary to order a security review of Britain's airspace. One of his government colleagues, the Transport Minister Richard Holden, says Chinese surveillance balloons may have already come into our skies. I mean, it's, it's possible, you know, it's also possible that, and I would think likely that there will be uh, people from the Chinese government trying to act as a hostile state. Well, let's bring in Air Marshal Greg Bagwell, former Deputy Commander for Operations at RAF Air Command. Uh, good to speak to you today. Uh, the Minister says it's possible we've had Chinese surveillance balloons in our skies. That makes it sound like the government might not know either way. Are balloons something we've even been looking for as a possible threat? Hi, Kate. Yeah, it's, it's always difficult, isn't it, to, uh, to disprove uh, a negative. So, um, to my knowledge, we've never seen anything like this over the UK. Um, there are issues here, of course. This, these fly quite high. This was over 60,000 feet, so it's in a grey area of, of the, um, the aerospace um, domain, if you like. 
Um, and um, they're not that easy to see either with, I think a lot of this was through the naked eye, if you remember, rather than through uh, other other systems. So, so yeah, it's going to be a difficult one to sort of go back and prove that this has never happened previously. Not forgetting, of course, that there are satellites even higher that do this on a regular basis. So uh, it's not new. And do we have the capability to spot a spy balloon if it comes into our airspace today? I, I, won't, I won't get into the technical details, and, and it will depend on the makeup of that balloon. So it, more often than not, it will be the things hanging underneath it that will be detectable either through heat or through a radar signature if they're using you know, reflective materials. And, and you can almost work out how this other one was shot down as to how, uh, how that works out for, uh, for aircraft or radars. How can you actually identify when a balloon, though, is a potential threat or not? It depends what you mean by threat. If you if you mean a threat to to intelligence gathering, then you have to obviously have to look at the sensors and see what it was up to. And I think America has now recovered some of those sensors and will undoubtedly be able to figure out what it was able to do, whether it was um, photographs or or, in, or electronic intelligence, and, and they'll they'll be able to work that through. There's another risk, of course, which which hasn't been mentioned so much about that balloon, but the other three were in much lower airspace, and and therefore there are issues here about whether there's a risk to to aviation in general. Interesting, one of the reasons we intercept Russian aircraft, Russian military aircraft off the UK isn't because we think uh, they're about to start a fight. It's because they often turn off the systems that make them visible to air traffic. And actually, it's more of a safety of flight issue. And I think that will eventually start to become perhaps more dominating of this conversation as to how easy it is to keep everyone else out of harm's way. Uh, and Mike Clark, on those sensors that the US has found from the alleged Chinese balloon, how much exactly do you think the, the US will be able to learn? Oh, uh, quite a lot. I mean, I'm sure that there was quite a lot of them because there, it seemed to be quite a heavy payload. I mean, one of the advantages of balloons, I mean, there's all sorts of pros and cons, as we've discussed. Balloons can take a bigger payload, and this seems to be a fairly considerable one. So there'll be quite a lot of stuff there, which the Americans may or may not choose to put on display or to talk about. And they'll say, well, you know, we've detected these, these and these sorts of sensors. They haven't said which yet, but I'm sure that they will give some indication. And the Chinese will say, that's all a lie. You're just making it up. But most of the world, I think, will believe it because it's almost certainly demonstrably true. So it will tell them quite a lot about whatever the purpose of that balloon was. And also the idea that the Pentagon are beginning to play with that maybe it wasn't intended to go over continental US airspace. Maybe it was intended to go again over Hawaii and Guam. I'm, I'm a bit sceptical about that one for all sorts of reasons. But nevertheless, there's lots of theories going around. But the, the sensors themselves, we will, I think, be told quite a lot about them. And the Americans, I would imagine, will learn quite a bit. And Mike, what do you think of the Defence Secretary's security review that he's announced for UK airspace? Oh, well, it's easy enough to do. I mean, it's a sensible thing to to announce politically. Yes, we're reviewing it to make sure that we're not uh, being caught out. And review, I think, probably consists of asking uh, the, um, uh, either either the CDS and get the CDS, the Chief of Defence Staff staff, just, just tell me that we're OK. You know, tell me that we can adjust our, our radars to go for these smaller objects. Tell me that we're OK to look for them if we choose to. Tell me that the QRA, the Quick Reaction Alert, is in good order. Um, it's easy enough to do a review. Review. I mean, whether it be a fundamental review, I very much doubt, but it's a question of just telling the bureaucracy, give me some ticks in the box that we're covering all of the, the obvious things. Uh, and Greg Bagwell, you, you mentioned earlier about that grey area in airspace. What actually counts as our airspace? How high does it go up compared to how high these four objects were found over North America? You're, you're going to test me now, aren't you? The, um, <laughs> 
My, my understanding is up to about 60,000 feet is, is what's known as sort of upper information region. And, and you should seek permission to operate in that airspace from, from an air traffic agency. So, so if you're in that airspace uh, and you're not talking or you're not showing yourself being visible, then strictly speaking, you're not complying with, with the law of the air. Um, the Chinese balloon, as I understand it, was slightly higher than that, in which case maybe they were um, playing on the edges, if you like, of, of what was legal and what's not legal. So I, I think there will be a debate about the gap between 60,000 feet and, um, and space, if you will. Um, so I think that's going to come out. I think what's interesting is the, the, the other three that were shot down the week after or the weekend after, I think what's telling from that is maybe that happens a lot more than we realise. And only when you start looking for things do you start finding them. So I think it's going to be very interesting to understand perhaps how much slow-moving high-altitude objects are, all, are there as a matter of routine. And Greg, the Prime Minister, when asked about this, pointed to our quick reaction alert force, the Typhoon Jets, for defending us from hostile balloons. In all your years in the RAF, did you ever know quick reaction alert to be scrambled for anything other than a plane? Oh, that's a good question. Um, not, not that I can think of off the top of my head. So it, it is usual, of course, that the threat is always an aircraft or a flying object that goes at some speed. Um, so for this to be such a slow moving object operating at such height is quite unusual. But as you saw the other day, um, actually sometimes the slower it goes, it doesn't make it harder to find or shoot. And you can intercept these things if, if you believe them to be a threat either to intelligence gathering or to safety of flight. And Mike, there is an argument that we, the West, are rather overreacting to this. Countries carry out surveillance on each other. It's a fact of life. China's got satellites we can, which can look at us. Are we letting ourselves be too distracted by this with everything else that's going on? Uh, well, it's been over-promoted a bit in the United States because it's become caught in the Democrat versus Republican polarization, which turns everything into a party political issue. But in general, I'm, we're not wrong to as it were, wake up to the fact that this is a new domain now of aerial surveillance. I mean, you know, the Americans have got a program which is not fully operational yet. This cold star, as it's called, but will become operational to use balloons for more surveillance purposes. And as Greg said, you know, above 60, 70,000 feet is this blank space, as it were, before you get to the lower Earth orbit. So the upper stratosphere to lower Earth orbit is this relatively blank space which balloons can exploit. And that's what, what is happening. We're on the verge now of a new development, it's not a revolution, but a, a new development in surveillance, which has got to be factored into everyone's defence and security plans. And Greg, if we are going to put more effort into checking UK airspace for possible surveillance balloons, would that affect our capability to scan for other risks? Um, no, it shouldn't. And, and, and that's a question for someone a little bit more technically savvy than myself. But no, in theory, no. The, the ability to reflect whether it be heat or a radar signature that the techniques are broadly similar but but often you don't tune your systems to look for things going that slowly it, it should be a relatively simple tuning of systems to make sure that you're picking up everything good to hear from you air marshal greg bagwell thanks so much for your time today this is sitrep there's a lot to talk about on Ukraine this week, but before we do, a reminder of why it all matters way beyond Ukraine's borders. 
The war, nearly a year old, has radically changed the work of British forces, both supporting Kyiv's war effort and defending NATO allies in Eastern Europe. Rosie Layden has been to see British troops exercising in Estonia as part of NATO's enhanced forward presence and examining how they fit into the country's own defence plans. With a population of under 1.5 million, Estonia relies heavily on the NATO troops stationed here for its national defence. Britain currently has around 900 servicemen and women based here. The UK first deployed to Estonia in 2017, but last year saw a doubling of troop numbers. Major Nick Bridges is Chief of Staff of NATO's Enhanced Forward Presence in the region. Since we've been here, uh, the commanding officer's intent was to be to deter and defend. And for everything we've done, it has always been about those two things. The events of last year have uh, renewed our operational purpose out here. It's focused the mind to come out here. And so since we got here in September, everyone's been set, uh, ready to answer the call if required. As a small country, all male citizens are expected to do 11 months training in the armed forces. One of those currently doing his national service is Sergeant Lennart Valham. A small country like Estonia, it's uh, quite important that uh, everybody joins together and uh, protects our country. NATO is a big part of Estonia. I can say that uh, you can even hear uh, like NATO tanks rolling around. It, uh, it uh, feels like a kind of power. You know. Andrews Murillo is the commander of the Estonian 1st Infantry Brigade. He's been leading 1,300 NATO troops on exercise winter camp. We have been preparing to defend Estonia since 1991. This is nothing new one. The Russia has been our neighbour for centuries and we have also understood and know that Russia will possess threat to their neighbours. So we have been practising for this one and Ukraine war just gives us confidence that so far what we have done has been right and our readiness in extremely high level. The war in Ukraine has motivated Estonia to invest heavily in long-range multiple rocket systems like the American HIMARS. Hanno Pevka is the Estonian defense minister. One thing what we see that approximately 80% killed in action are coming not from the close fight but from the long fire. And this is why we also changed uh, here our decisions very quickly, uh, acquiring HIMARS, acquiring new canines, self-propelled hosers. But the Estonians aren't just watching the war in Ukraine. They're actively engaged and recently sent their entire supply of 155mm howitzers to Ukrainian forces. We share the same history and we have the same neighbour. And at the moment, uh, it's a very simple understanding that each tank destroyed in Ukraine is one tank less behind our border. So far, Estonia spent approximately 1% of its entire GDP on military aid to Ukraine. The tiny nation hopes to set an example to larger, more powerful allies and send a message to its warlike neighbour that it will not be bullied or pressured into submission. Rosie Layden in Estonia. Well, in the last week, Russia has launched its biggest aerial bombardment of Ukraine for four months. It included more than 70 cruise missiles. In the Luhansk region, Russia claims to have broken through Ukrainian lines in two places and pushed troops back as far as two miles. The regional governor says that does not correspond with reality, but he also says there's been heavy shelling and waves of attacks. Uh, Michael Clark, is this the predicted new Russian offensive now underway? 
Well, it may be the uh, the preparatory stages of one. I mean, this this might be the sort of shaping of the battlefield, as it were, because what we're seeing, the Russians certainly haven't broken through in two places, but they've certainly put pressure on two places. So we're we're getting into the end game in Bakhmut, and then further south, they had a big push at uh, Vuladar, and they've lost. I mean, the reports are that up to two uh, battalion tactical groups seem to have been destroyed at uh, Vuladar. I mean, that's, you know, maybe up to 40 main battle tanks and uh, something like 120 infantry fighting vehicles. And that's credible because the Ukrainians are holding on there and the Russians are taking tremendous losses. But what the Russians seem to be doing, they're throwing personnel at Ukrainian positions. This is not a major offensive. I think this is a push because they've now got up to 300,000 troops in theatre and they're just throwing people at Ukrainian positions to fix them in place, I think, to actually make it impossible for the Ukrainians to to work their forces elsewhere, to, to redeploy them. As and when we see the, the real offensive start, we will see it, I'm sure, with a lot of air power. And we, we, we know that Russian air power is massing at bases in Western Russia. We can see it. When that air power starts to be used, then we'll see how the main offensive develops. So I think these are preparatory phases, not specially effective at the moment, but they're certainly putting Ukraine under some pressure. And Mike, you wrote in the Sunday Times about the possibility of Russia trying again to take the capital, Kyiv. Do you think Moscow sees that as a shortcut to victory in this war? doubtful, I'd say, because I don't think they can achieve victory in the sense that I don't think they can take Kyiv. They can surround it and they could pressurise it. They can maybe bombard it if they're prepared to just start a long process of brutalisation. But if Kyiv fights, and all the indications are that the citizens of Kyiv certainly will fight, then I don't think the Russians can take it not very easily without it becoming, you know, another Mariupol on a scale four times bigger. I mean, it would be like the Battle of Stalingrad, only worse, and the world would be watching. But what may happen is if the Ukrainians are successful in putting Crimea under pressure, not invading Crimea, but making Crimea vulnerable to Ukrainian air attack, if they do that, which I think they will try, and in the north, the Russians surround Kiev and begin to pressure it without actually trying to move in on it, then both sides have got a, a kind of an, an ace in their pack. Both sides will have a major pressure point on the other. And that may create a situation, Kiev in the north, Crimea in the south, that drives them towards some sort of shaky ceasefire, maybe later in the summer. I'm just guessing. But mm. if I were sort of saying what would be the key moments on the future battlefield, it would be Russia's attempt to surround Kiev and Ukraine's attempt to make Crimea vulnerable. They would be, in, in both cases, they would counteract each other and maybe force both sides to rethink strategically. Well, NATO defence ministers have been meeting this week focused on what the Secretary General says is now a grinding war of attrition in Ukraine and the risk of Allies' military stockpiles running out. Still, a fresh £200 million worth of aid was pledged, including artillery ammunition, surveillance and reconnaissance and spare parts for equipment, including Ukraine's current tanks. But there's still no sign of the fighter jets President Zelensky is desperately appealing for. At the meeting, America's top military officer, General Mark Milley, gave a bullish assessment of the war, perhaps more aimed at galvanizing the alliance than reflecting harsh reality. Putin thought he could defeat Ukraine quickly, fracture the NATO alliance and act with impunity. He was wrong. Ukraine remains free. They remain independent. NATO in this coalition has never been stronger. And Russia is now a global pariah. In short, Russia has lost. 
Well, we can speak now to Corey Shaki, who's held senior roles at the US State and Defence Departments and the US National Security Council. She's now Director of Foreign and Defence Policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, good to speak to you today. Mark Milley says Russia has lost. What's your assessment of the current situation? I think Ukraine is winning, but General Milley's conclusion is premature. Because, of course, Ukrainians are dying every single day and their territory is still occupied and terrorized by Russia. So, no, they haven't won. But what General Milley, I think, is attempting to do, and I favor, is reminding those of us in the West that we are strong, we are safe, and we can continue to stand shoulder to shoulder and to support Ukraine as they fight this war. So what happens next? What happens next is Russia runs short of talent, of people, of equipment, and Ukraine grows stronger thanks to Western training, Western equipment, and the grit of a society that believes in its liberty. I think by this time next year, Ukraine will have recaptured all of its internationally recognized territory, and Russia will be a snarling, contained danger to us all. And Ukraine's President Zelensky is really pushing for Western fighter jets, which still aren't forthcoming. The UK's Defence Secretary says we're focusing on capabilities rather than platforms. Are NATO allies, in your view, getting this right? We are slowly, stingily getting it right. You know, at the start of this war, we said we couldn't provide Ukraine weapons because they'd immediately be in Russian hands after Ukraine quickly lost. A few months later, we said (laughs) that we couldn't give them offensive weapons, just defensive weapons, and then we could give them offensive weapons, and then we could give them offensive weapons that range Russian territory. So you can see Western inhibitions slowly falling away. Whether fighter jets are the right way to protect Ukrainian airspace, I would leave to my military colleagues to tell me my suspicion is that What President Zelensky is asking for fighter planes for is less for their utility militarily than for the symbolism that we continue to run bigger and bigger risks. And by the way, he's right to ask for that. You say that that Ukraine will gradually win back the territory it's lost. On both sides, this is a war of attrition. How long can we physically keep supplying Ukraine with what they need? We can and should keep supplying them with what they need until they win, as the President of the United States has repeatedly said. What we are hearing, though, from lower levels is we can't provide them long-range precision strike because we might need them for a war we might have to fight. And that's a terrible answer. The right answer is for all of us to gin up our defense industrial base, which we should have had ginned up anyway and had much more in the stockpile than any of us have, and supply Ukraine with what they need and rebuild our own stockpiles. What about that risk then of the West running dry of supplies before they can ramp up production capacity for the most basic military supplies? 
Well, first of all, the fault is not Ukraine's, it's our own that we let our stockpiles dwindle this much. I saw a report that at the rate ammunition is being expended in Ukraine, the British Army would have five days of fight. That cannot be the right answer whether or not we supply Ukraine. And money can solve this problem. You know, for 4% of the U.S. defense budget, Ukraine is destroying the Russian army. You met President Zelensky last year. What is he like? <laughs> I think he's the most impressive wartime leader since Winston Churchill. He's funny. He's smart. You know, he asks the great strategist best question, which is, what am I doing wrong? What should I be doing better? And he is embodying Ukrainians' grit to win this war. The outcome of this war isn't written yet. What do you think the most likely scenarios are? I think the most likely scenario is that Russia's choices bleed it dry. They wanted to conscript a half million Russian soldiers. They managed 265,000 at the cost of a million people fleeing the country. That's a terrible cost exchange ratio. Whereas Ukraine is losing soldiers, but they have the entirety of their population willing to fight for their country. I mean, one of the most interesting things anyone told me when I was in Ukraine was their uh, military intelligence guys saying that the biggest mystery for them is that the Russian army doesn't appear to have reconnaissance, that they only know where Ukrainian units are when they bump into them. And what it looks like is happening now on the battlefield is Russia is sending waves of ill-trained soldiers to identify where Ukrainian positions are so that Russia can attack them with artillery. That's a very terrible and expensive way to figure out where your adversary is. Kari Shaki, good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure. News, discussions and analysis. This is Zitrep. Uh, Mike, just a couple of further threads to tie up before we go. Um, the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, is due to step down in October. The rumour mill is grinding as ever. And now his spokesperson has said he will not ask for another extension of his term. That appears to leave the door open for NATO to ask him to stay. Uh, and as you mentioned a couple of weeks ago, our Defence Secretary Ben Wallace seems to feature highly in the rumours for possible replacement. Uh, yes, he does. And he's been indicating at least privately quite recently that he is interested in the job we always thought that he was but I think he's now let it be known that he is and remember also that Ben Wallace is his MP for wire in Preston North and because of boundary changes he's going to face a real fight there at the next election particularly if there's a swing against the Conservatives and it would make perfect sense for him to step out of national politics into an international job. So good sense for him. Very good sense for NATO, because I've no hesitation saying I'm sure he will be a very good Secretary General, just like George Robertson was. However, whenever these things come up, you can guarantee there'll be a French bid to derail it. And so there is. <laughs> and so French commentary this week that Britain's has hollowed out force, Britain's a third rate military power and so on, are all designed, as it were, to diminish, I think, the sense that 
think would be a, a good move to have a British Secretary General. In reality, of course, as the IISS, International Institute for Strategic Studies, Military Balance, which comes out, was it yesterday or today, that made clear that France actually has bigger military forces than Britain now for a, for a lower defence budget, which is true. However, the I mean, French forces are just as hollowed out as British forces, but they are on paper bigger and therefore look a bit more efficient. And we're back to the old routine of Britain and France having a ding-dong over whether one of their candidates is the most credible person for a major job in a European context, in this case, NATO Secretary General. And the ministers head from Brussels to Germany for the Munich Security Conference. Rishi Sunak is also attending. How important is this event? What actually happens there? Oh, yes, well, the Munich Security Conference is like a sort of a, a Davos for the defence business. And like all these Davos-style events, it's a great talking shop, and sometimes it's just nothing but a talking shop. But every now and again, what happens at Munich turns out to be really important because all the big names are there. I mean, 2003, just before the Iraq War, the fact that America and uh, Europe were really at odds over Iraq came right out at the Munich Security Conference and the Germans were very, very critical of America in public at Munich. That was a really mm. big moment. Another big moment was 2007 when Putin turned up to the Munich Security Conference and showed how angry he was, really angry, at NATO's plans of enlargement. And his anger should have actually rung more alarm bells than it seemed to at the time. So that was a big moment. And then last year, the 2022 conference, in the shadow of a, a Russian likely invasion, that was important. And this year, uh, in the reality of a Russian invasion, this is going to be very important because all the big names will be there. What they say will be important and it will matter. And this will be like Davos on steroids. And it <laughs> will actually it will actually have a, a policy outcome depending on uh, the way in which the whole thing goes next weekend. Professor Michael Clark, thank you. And my thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.